Once again, welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel. Uh, so excited to have you here worshiping with us today. Uh, my name is Pastor Micah, and uh, if we haven't met yet, uh, welcome. And uh, we want to just continue to worship the Lord today together through the study of his word. So if you want to go ahead and grab your Bibles, um, we're going to go into Acts chapter 12. We're going to be finishing that up at the end of Acts chapter 12 today. If you need a Bible, there's some hardback black ones somewhere there on the floor around you. You can grab one of those and follow along with us there as well. And uh, again, if you're a guest with us today, man, we're so glad you're here. If you need anything at all, please let us know. We would love uh, to serve you any way that we can. So as we kind of step into Acts chapter 12 here again today, we're going to do the last verse of 12 and then step into chapter 13 as well. And um, we're looking at, again, how, is, how do we do this thing of mission? How do we work with God on his mission as the Holy Spirit empowers us to do so? And in this case, we're going to be looking at how does he multiply his mission um, as a result of, this, um, of our partnering with him? Um, some of you probably know this uh, from past sermons or whatever, but I, I used to be a, a teacher before I went into full-time vocational ministry. That was kind of my first career out of college. Um, I taught social studies and psychology, uh, mainly to high school students. And, um, and I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I went to college. I, I kind of went, ended up in the teaching profession uh, because I liked the subject matter for one. And I seemed to have some type of, you know, God had given me some type of ability or skill to communicate and teach. And so I was like, well, that's logically a good fit, right? I just kind of put those two things together. And so I ended up kind of going that route. And um, and so I graduated college, I get into teaching, and, and in, my brief, in my brief teaching career uh, in the public schools, um, you know, I, I got, my students got high scores, I got good reviews from my administrators, I got invited to do different leadership things within education, but I still always kind of felt like I was kind of a subpar teacher, um, because I would look around at other teachers in our building, you know, like the ones that like, just like they should have like their own versions of Mr. Holland's opus. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like they're just the like teachers who like, they, they love it, man. They, they love the students. They love the parents. They love the subject. They love the school. They just, they're just in love with what they do. And that makes them really, really great teachers because they have a heart for what they do. Not just knowing the subject matter, not just being a good communicator, but they have a heart for it. And then I looked at me and I was like, I don't have that. Like, I, I like the teaching part but the kids I could pretty much do without. That was kind of where I was at. Like, that's a bad place to be as a teacher, but that's kind of where I was at. And so I was like, maybe this isn't where I'm supposed to be long-term. And, um, and I just knew if I didn't really have that heart for what I was doing, it wasn't ever going to be as good as it could be. It wasn't going to be as full as the Lord would want it to be. Thankfully, at the same time that that was all happening, he was kind of changing my heart and calling me into something else and giving me a love, a true heart for his word and for his worship and for his people, hence why we ended up here uh, so many years later. But I think this same idea applies to all of us, not just pastors, not just teachers, but it applies to all of us as Christians, that if we're really going to be as effective as we can possibly be for God, for his mission, for what he is doing in his church, it all starts not with our abilities, but with a heart for God. Sometimes we want to jump straight into the, well, I can do this, I can do that, I can serve here, I can... That's all great, and we love that. But it's got to start with a heart for God. And that's what we're going to see in the scriptures today. Here's your, here's your kind of main thought for this morning. To help multiply disciples, I need a heart for God, not just the hand of God. If I'm really going to be effective at making and multiplying disciples in the church, it starts with a heart for him and what he's doing, not just my skills or ability that he's given me in my life. And so we want to press into that today and see how we can maybe cultivate that heart in ourselves 
um, how we can maybe grow our heart for God so that we can be more effective with him on mission. So end of chapter 12, look at verse 25. We're going to pick it up right there. It says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now, verse 1, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menanean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So that's our text for today. And so what we're going to look at here as we walk through this is three characteristics of a heart for God. What are three things that we can press into, we can grow in, in terms of having a heart for God? Here's number one. A heart that prioritizes worship. A heart that prioritizes worship. That's actually, we're going to get to that actually kind of in verse 2. Um, but before we get to verse 2, we've got to deal with verse 25 and verse 1, right? We don't skip verses here at Harvest, amen? Amen. Okay, so verse 25 kind of picks up in a weird spot because it says that Paul and Barn- or Saul and Barnabas um, are returning from somewhere. So let me kind of catch you up if maybe you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks. So back in chapter 11... All right. Um, some things were happening in Antioch. Some people were getting saved. So Jerusalem sent Barnabas up to go check on these new Christians and see if they were legit. They were. So he goes and then gets Saul and brings Saul back to Antioch so they can start teaching them and helping them grow as disciples of Christ. All right. So they're there and they're doing the work and things are going well. But they decide they want to take up an offering because disciples of Jesus are generous people. Right. So we're going to take up an offering. They're going to send it back to Jerusalem, the home church because they have a famine coming their way and they want to help them and they want to love on them. So they collect this offering and they give it to Barnabas and Saul and they send Barnabas and Saul to Jerusalem to deliver the offering. All right, that's chapter 11. Then we got to chapter 12 uh, the last couple of weeks and what Luke does is he kind of takes like a time out from Saul and Barnabas and he jumps over to a different scene and he talks about Herod and Peter. Remember, like Herod's trying to like get favor with the Jews so he captures Peter and puts him in jail. He's going to kill him. And then Peter gets out, and then he tells the church, and everything crazy goes out, and, and Harry ends up killing, getting killed himself. And it's just, if you missed it, man, go read chapter 12. It's awesome. So, um, so all that's happening over here in a different part of the story. And now we're at the end of chapter 12. Herod's dead. Things are resolved there. And so now this is like that moment in the show where they're like back at the ranch, right? So like they're now pointing back to chapter 11. You remember Barnabas and Saul who went to Jerusalem? Now they're returning to Antioch. And we're picking it up. So that's how 25 fits into everything else that's going on right here. And they're bringing this guy with him named John Mark, um, who's Barnabas's relative. And he's kind of tagging along to see if he wants to kind of try his feet at ministry. And you're going to hear more about him later. But then verse 1 says this. Now at the church at Antioch. That is a super important statement right there. This is the first time we have seen a body of believers get called a church outside of Jerusalem. In other words, Antioch is the first ever church plant. All right? This is the first one. Barnabas and Saul have been there. They've been raising up disciples, and they have now established a new church outside of the mother church in Jerusalem. So a new thing is starting here. This is a whole new season of ministry and mission that God is doing as his church starts to expand beyond the original group. And it says, in this church, there were prophets and teachers. 
Um, and he's going to list five guys for us. But before we get into the five guys, let's talk about these two titles for a second. So teacher is pretty clear, right? Like teacher is someone who teaches, in this case, the word of God. They didn't have the New Testament yet. It hadn't been written yet. So they would have been verbally teaching about Jesus and his life and his doctrine and all that kind of stuff to the people. And so that was kind of their thing. They taught the gospel and the doctrine. And then they had this group called prophets, all right? Prophets throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, are guys who speak for God. God comes and gives them a word, and then they speak it to God's people or to others or whatever is applicable, okay? So in this case, they've got some guys who are going to be speaking for God and speaking words that he's given them. But I want you to notice something here about this gift of prophecy, this, these prophets, even in the New Testament, even in the early days of the church. We're going to list five names in a second. Only one of those five guys has anything they said recorded in the Bible. And that's going to be Saul, who eventually becomes Paul and writes a lot of the New Testament. So what that tells us is, although these prophecies were true and they were from the Lord, as the Bible tells us, just because they were from God doesn't mean that they were equal in authority to Scripture. Because if they were, they would have been written down for us to know today in God's Word. So there are, there's a level of prophecy, there's a gift of prophecy that comes where God uses people to speak into other people's lives or situations from Him, but those words that they're speaking do not carry the same authority as God's written word, his revelation to us does necessarily. And so this gives us an instruction here on how do we deal with prophecy and prophets, the gift of prophecy in the modern day church today? What do we do with this? Because right? here at Harvest, we believe that you know, the Bible is true and that all the gifts in the Bible are still um, uh, active and available to us today as the Lord chooses to use them. We don't have control over that. He has control over that. Amen. Right? But as he chooses to move, he chooses to move, and we just respond to that. So if someone comes to us and says, I have the gift of prophecy, and God told me this, what do we do with that? Let me give you three filters for testing prophecy today. Three filters you can run this through to kind of figure out, what do I do with this gift of prophecy in the modern-day church? I think this is what they did in the church at Acts as well. The first thing you have to ask yourself, is the word that they're speaking, is the prophecy they're speaking, is it contrary to Scripture? If the prophecy is in any way contrary to the written word of God, then we automatically know that it is false and that it must be rejected. Okay? Because God, God is very clear that this is truth, this is absolute truth, and anything that goes against this is not from him. So the first filter is simply that. Is it against the word of God? If it is, throw it out. Second filter, is it continuing scripture? Is the prophecy one in such a way that they're saying, well, it, it's not contrary to scripture, but it's adding to scripture. It's saying that this is additional authority equal to what God's written word says. And if the prophecy is continuing scripture in some way, we also have to say that it is false and to reject that. Because God's word, God says in his word that it is complete, that it is finished, that no one should add to it or take away from it. So if it's continuing, if it's going beyond the bounds of what God's word says, then we also need to reject that as false, or at least not from the Lord. Right? They might have had some pizza last night that told them that, but God didn't say that. Okay. The third filter is clarifying scripture. Sometimes there will be a prophetic word from someone that is simply taking what God's word has already said and clarifying it in a way that speaks into our specific life or into a specific situation or into a specific realm of the church at that time. Okay? If that is the case, 
that's the type of prophecy that we want to lean into. We still need to test it. We still need to pray and be careful. It doesn't mean it's necessarily from the Lord. But we need to pray and see, Holy Spirit, are you speaking to me in this? Is this from you? And if we believe that it is, then we respond to the Holy Spirit in whatever way is appropriate for that word. Does that make sense? Okay. So there's still a place for this, but it has to be in line with what God's word teaches us about how he communicates and how he teaches us today. So these five leaders, prophets and teachers, we don't know which ones were which. Some of them may may have even been both. But here's the five guys that they list. Look at this. Number one is Barnabas. He's first in the list, probably because he was the most prominent, right? He was the first one on the scene in Antioch. He came from Jerusalem. He'd been a Christian the longest, right? He would have been like the original teacher slash church planter for Antioch. So he would have had a lot of weight with this congregation. The second guy is Simeon. Uh, Interestingly enough, Simeon is a Jewish name. So this guy comes from a Jewish background. He had a Jewish religious background before he became a Christian. But it says he was also called Niger, which that's a Latin name for the word black, which tells us that he probably is from Africa or one of the African nations there on the northern side where the gospel had reached down, the Jews had been um, dispersed there. And so at some point he moved to Antioch. And so he was a Jew, but he was also black. And now he's a Christian. Okay, that's a big couple big moves there for all of that, and that's all fitting together for the church, right? And then the third guy is Lucius of Cyrene. Lucius um, is from Cyrene, which is also a part of Africa at that time. So this has been another African from that region, but his name isn't Jewish. So he probably didn't have a Jewish religious background, even though they came from the same region. So he got some diversity there between those two guys, and now he's a Christian. Then you have uh, Mananean. That's another Jewish name. So he, again, has a Jewish background. And what's interesting about him it says he was a lifelong friend of Herod. In other words, they grew up together. Their families were tight, right? Like they, they knew each other. They, they were friends at some point in time. And uh, so he would have had a, a high social standing in the world, in that region. Um, people would have thought very well of him. Um, he would have had a lot of clout with people. And so the fact that he has become a Christian is also very interesting here and is part of this group of five guys. And then you have Saul as the last one listed, interestingly enough. Um, we know that guy, right? He's the, he's the former Jewish zealot, um, persecutor of the church, Pharisee. You know, Jesus meets him on Damascus, converts him, and then he goes off and starts making disciples. He's from Tarsus also. So not only is he Jewish, but he also has kind of this Roman citizenship and this Roman background to him as well. So the reason I bring all that up is to show you that the first five guys, the foundational leaders, the foundational uh, uh, people of this new church plant in Antioch were a very diverse group. Different backgrounds, different religions, different places they lived, different skin colors. Like they were just, which shows us one, the diversity of Antioch. The city itself was a very diverse city. And it shows us that God is for diversity in his church, right? That he loves all of his people and he wants us together serving him, following him. And he's bringing them in here to the first church. So this unlikely group <laughs> finds uncommon community together in Jesus Christ, in the mission that he had for them. And they're doing it here at Antioch. So now we're finally to verse two, and it says this, that they, and they doesn't just mean the leaders, it means the leaders and the church all together. So the whole church is together and they're worshiping and fasting. This was kind of their normal rhythms, right? They got together to worship on a regular basis, just like we do. And the reason they did that was because they wanted to encounter God through worship. 
They knew that they needed regular times of coming and encountering the greatness and the glory of God to fill them up and to lead them forward. So much so that when they came together to worship, um, their worship probably would have looked similar to ours, but they would have had some teaching, some preaching, if you will. Again, they didn't have the New Testament yet, so it would have just been verbal. They would have sang some hymns that oftentimes were full of doctrine as well that would help reinforce the teaching that they were receiving. They would have done communion. They would have done baptism to show these different ordinances and also how those connect to Jesus and the, the doctrine there. So they would come together to worship, but then they also says that they were fasting. I know that's kind of a scary word for Americans sometimes because um, we like our food. But, but what they're doing here is they're giving up one of the greatest desires of the human body in order to prioritize their worship of God. Right? I'm willing to forego this so I put all my energy and all my attention and all my worship directly on him and him alone. It's, Luke is showing us here the, the priority that they placed on encountering God through these acts. I think they were desperate. I mean, think about this. This is a brand new religion in the brand new city. Like the first church plant, like they're trying to figure things out. They are desperately in need of Jesus and they know it. It's a good thing. It's a good thing for us to, to know as well. And I think what's important here is what we see is that a life on mission flows from a life of worship. If we're really going to be followers of Christ, if we're really going to be on mission with him and doing um, what he's called us to do for his kingdom, we can't just start with the go do the prophecy thing or go do the teaching thing or go do the music thing or go do the, we can't just jump in and start working. We have to start with where's my heart? Do I have a life of worship? Do I have a heart and a desire to encounter God personally, relationally, and then that heart is what fuels me to go out and serve and to be on mission with Jesus. We see that here with the church in Antioch. A couple of weeks ago, we had Pastor Steve here from, um, from Peoria, and uh, he, he kind of threw out just kind of verbally this, this triangle concept of what it means to follow Jesus. It's really good. I've heard it before from them, and I just want to kind of reinforce that with you today. So let's just imagine that your life with Jesus, your life on mission, is represented by a triangle, Okay? There's kind of three pieces to this. And the very first thing we have to do, if we're going to step into this life with Christ and follow him on mission, we have to start with what they started with, encountering God. Coming and worshiping at his feet and, and hearing from him and interacting with him and letting him create this relationship with us that can fuel everything else in our life from that point forward. And we're going to fill in the rest of that triangle as we go later as we're going to see it right here in the first church at Antioch. Okay, so it starts with encountering God. We need that to be on mission. You know, it's, um, it's a proven fact that our bodies, um, or the human body, needs rest, right? It needs sleep. Um, and I think we all know this, um, but the reality is that the majority of us do not get enough of it. Would you agree with that? Let's just, let's just kind of prove it to ourselves this morning. Let's just do a little poll. You can do, just raise your hand up real quick. How many of you, on average, on average, night to night, get more than eight hours of sleep. Okay? How many of you on average get seven to eight hours of sleep? You're in that range. How many of you less than seven hours of sleep a night on average? Okay. This is normal. Some of you are like, do you know how old my kids are? Of course I get less than seven hours of sleep. I'm like, what are you talking about? Okay, I get it. Um, but the average person, it says, the scientist says it needs seven to eight hours of sleep. That's kind of the norm. 
the average American gets 6.8 hours. 40% of Americans get less than six hours of sleep a night. And yet we know we need it. Like we know that our bodies, your body can't function correctly in order to get through the, the work of daily life to do everything we need to do. We have to have rest. We have to have time to recharge. And I think we've all experienced the goodness of it when it happens, right? Like you had that moment where, you, you know, you were studying for that test and nothing was making sense. And all of a sudden you get some sleep the next morning, all of a sudden the words like aren't gobbledygook anymore, right? Like, like the brain becomes clear again. Um, or, you know, you've had the experience where you, you, you just, could not stand to even look at that kid one more time and then you go to sleep and the next morning like all of a sudden your patience is somewhat restored again and you have like something to give again to them or you know that sickness had you on death's door and lo and behold a little bit of sleep and it's not quite as bad as it was because our bodies need that to recharge to 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 gain energy and to rest and so bottom line is we can't do life without rest are we agreed on that Likewise, we can't do the Christian life without worship. Just like your physical body needs rest to function, your spiritual life, your heart for God needs worship in order to function correctly. In order to walk through the the mission with Jesus, we have to have hearts that are filled with God through encountering him in worship. That's true of our daily lifestyle. We need to have a daily lifestyle of worship. Studying the word, prayer, listening to, to, to worship music or, or, you know, connecting with other believers, like whatever that looks like for you. But we need to have a daily patterns of worship. But we also need to have corporate patterns of worship. If we need worship to survive spiritually, this weekly gathering is uber important. You need this. I know sometimes on Sunday mornings at 7, you don't think you do, but you do. And I'm just going to be real frank with you guys this morning. Listen, I'm I'm not trying to be ugly, but this is just your pastor loving you and telling you, listen, one to two times a month isn't going to cut it. If you're going to have a spiritual, healthy walk with Jesus Christ, one to two Sundays a month is not enough. Weekly, you need to be here encountering God in all of his glory and all of your worship and letting him fill you again for spiritual life. My strength for mission is dependent on the strength of my worship. Soak in that for a second. My strength, my ability to be on mission with Jesus is completely dependent on the strength of my worship of Jesus. Has to start there. So prioritize worship. That's the first way that we grow a heart for God. Number two, second point this morning, is a heart that lives open-handed. A heart that lives open-handed. So right after they are between their fasting, it says here that the Holy Spirit said, So the Holy Spirit speaks to the church in this moment in some way, right? God is directing his mission. He's stepping in and he's leading us here. And God will always lead us if we will listen to his spirit. He'll lead us in his work. He'll lead us in his ways. He'll lead us as people and as a church if we will listen to the spirit. So the Holy Spirit speaks to them here, probably through one of the prophets that we just heard about in the last part. 
And the Spirit says this, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Clear? It's a pretty clear message, right? Like there's nothing cryptic about that. Like, give me Barnabas and Saul. I have a new work for them to do. And he even says, I have called them, reassuring them, listen, I'm behind this. God is doing this. I'm going to take them somewhere else to do something new. Now, in that moment, put yourself in the shoes of the Antioch church. Like, you're just an average believer, an average person in the church, sitting there that morning, doing the prayer and the fasting thing and the whole deal, and this is what comes out. I have to believe that they were pretty shocked. They were like, what? Like Barnabas and Saul? Like those are our best guys. We're like, they've been with us from the very beginning. They, they've been teaching us. They've been leading us. These are the guys who started our church. Like, these are our closest friends and comp- Like, not Barnabas and Saul. Seriously, God? Like, that's who you want? I think it would have been extremely hard for them to let them go in their human selves. But one thing I've learned walking with Jesus for a while now it seems like God always calls us to do hard things. Anybody else picking up on that? Is that happening happen in anybody else's house, right? Like, he always calls us to do hard things because when he calls us to do hard things that we can't do on our own, what's that do? It forces us to rely on him, to let him do it, to let him work in us and through us, and it's not just to be about me anymore. I think some of us have experienced similar things even in our church already. Some of us have already experienced the need to, to multiply our small groups, right? And, and we love these people and we've been doing life with these people for months or years and we don't want to let them go and we don't want to, but the group's growing and we need two groups and if the mission's going to keep going and keep multiplying, we have to do that. And it's hard. And we don't like it. But we still do it because it's for him not for me. Courtney and I experienced this at our last church. Our previous church, we were there for like five years and we, we had grown to love those people. We were, I mean, especially the staff, we were family, right? Because none of us had family locally. So we did holidays together. We did everything together. We were family. We were close. We loved them. We, we didn't want to leave them. But God said, go plant a church. And we had to leave that and let that go to come here and do this. Praise the Lord that we did. But here's the thing. You have to sometimes step through the hard thing to get to the better thing that God has. As I open my hands, as I release some of those things to him, he gets to do even more for his mission because I'm allowing him to do more with what he has given to me or to us or to our church. You know, one day in the future, God willing, we're going to send some of you off to go plant a church. And it'll be hard. And we'll hate to see you go. Most of you. Some of you probably be okay. But but we're going to do it when God says to do it because it's about the mission. It's about seeing the gospel go forth. It's about seeing God do more and more and more for his glory. Living open-handed often hurts me 
but it helps God's mission multiply. It's kind of a hard pill to swallow because we don't like to think about God's things hurting us. But in our humanness, in our flesh, in our own selfish desires, sometimes what God asks us to do, it hurts. But we need to step into it because that's what brings multiplication to the mission, to the kingdom. So it says here that they, the Spirit told them, I want Barnabas and Saul. And then in verse 3, it says they sent them off. They said yes, because humble leaders say yes to God, even when it hurts. Because we know it's for the mission and not just for me. It's for his glory and not just mine. And then the process is we learn to trust God and we step through these hard things. We get to see him multiply. We get to see as, as we give our leaders to go out and go do something else, we trust that the Lord's gonna backfill those positions and keep our church going. As we, as we give up our time to serve and to work and to do his thing, we trust him that he's gonna multiply our time in the other areas of our life and allow us to achieve everything else we need to achieve for our responsibilities. We trust the Lord that as we give of our dollars to resource more and more ministry through the church, that he's gonna backfill all those dollars with what we need to pay our bills and take care of our families and provide for us. This is what it looks like to hurt for the mission and to trust God in the midst of it. My capacity for mission is dependent on the openness of my hands. How much mission I can do with Jesus, how far I can go, how much I can achieve is completely and directly related to with how open are my hands to let him do what he wants to do. With my time, with my abilities, with my money, with my friends and my family and my church, how open are my hands so that God can do what he wants to do. So a heart that prioritizes worship, a heart that is open-handed, and thirdly, A heart that celebrates multiplication. We need a heart that celebrates multiplication. So they hear from the Spirit, right? The Spirit says, give me Barnabas and Saul. And the first thing they do, it says, and after fasting, laying hands. So they're like, all right, we heard from the Lord, but we just need to keep praying on this thing, right? So they kept praying, probably to kind of do what we talked about earlier, to verify, is this from the Lord, right? Is this really something that he is saying, or is this something that, you know, we need to receive or not? So they prayed for clarity, they got that, and then they continued to pray, no doubt, for the mission. Or if God's going to do this, man, we need to pray these guys out of here. We need to pray that God's going to bless this and use this. And, and, and it's so much so that as they're praying, it says they laid their hands on them. We do that sometimes at church when we're praying for someone, right? We lay our hands on them. In this case, they're laying their hands on Barnabas and Saul to, to commission them for the work. To say, yes. We are, for, we are with you, we are for you, we believe God is in this, and we are willing to send you out for the mission of God. And as they're commissioning them, they're also celebrating what God is doing. They're saying to God, yes and amen, we are with it, we are for it, we are all in God. Here, do what you want to do. And it's so important that when God calls us to mission that our hearts make it to that point where we say yes and amen and we celebrate the things of God. Not just, not just receive them, not just, you know, reluctantly go along, but like we get to the place where we are good with God and we love and celebrate what he is doing. 
I lost my place. What I think you also see here in this group of believers at Antioch is that they are, they're coming into a joy and a gratitude with the Lord. They're starting to see him do things in their church that they haven't seen before, and they're starting to to, to get on board and, and to accept that and to be with them in that. They're taking the, us to the next step, and they're exalting God. They've encountered God, they've heard from God, and now they're exalting God and saying, God, yes, we are with you, we are for you, and this is the next step for all of our lives on mission. Once we hear a word from God, we then have to embrace that and love and celebrate and exalt God for what he is doing with open hands and with ready hearts. And what's really cool about this right here, we're going to find out soon, that as they step into this, God's going to use their willingness, their open hearts, and their open hands to start the first ever church missions ministry, right? Like, like these are the first missionaries that are ever sent out from a church to spread the gospel, and Saul and Barnabas are going to go, and they're going to start planting churches and spreading the gospel, and this becomes our model for missions ever since. And it all started because the leaders in Antioch were willing to listen to the Lord and to open their hands and to celebrate what God was doing. So they sent them off. Now they're ready to engage. Encounter God, worship, hear from him, and then respond to him and exalt him for what he is doing and and for all he wants. And yes, I'm with you, Lord. Amen. Now I'm ready to come back down the other side of the mountain and actually engage with God and to get into the work and do what he's called me to do. So they send him off. Now that their heart is right, now their hands can go and do the work. But it's hard. It's really hard. They have to let Barnabas and Saul go. Which is, again, a reminder, multiplication is more important than my comfort and my desires. That's where God wants our hearts to get to. That the multiplication of disciples, the growth of the mission and his kingdom is more important than my daily comfort and desires. Courtney and I, um, we met in college. We went to the same college. We both graduated. Um, and then I was crazy enough to go to two more colleges before I finished my education career. Um, but you know, one thing I've noticed that all, common, all of our colleges, and I think all colleges in general have in common, is that after you leave, they still ask you for more money. Right? Like, like you gave them tons while you were there. And now you're out, and they're like, hey, can you give us some more? And so we're like, we get these letters, like, uh, like there's emails, like, all the time, every year. Like, hey, we're, can you give to the alumni fund? Can you give to this? And there's always asks for, and all colleges do that. That's just a thing that they do. Um, but I, I found out this week that Princeton, you guys are all at Princeton, right? Princeton is kind of the most, t- tends to be the most successful at this. They're at the top of alumni donations every year. Last year, $68 million was given to Princeton with 55% of their alumni participating. That's a pretty high percentage. So it just had me, I just had, I was like, I just had to ask, like, why? Like, and this is not like one year, this is like every year they get this much money from these amount of people. Why would you, why, why do they give so much to Princeton? Why do they give so much back to this institution? It's because they love it. It's their school and they love it and they believe in it and they want to see the mission go forward. And they want to see them keep making, uh, turning out more students who are successful and, and, and continuing the legacy of what is there. 
their heart is for their school. That's what we need as disciples of Christ. That's what we need as members of God's church, is that we love his church, we love him, we have a heart for him and for his mission so much that we are then willing, because of that heart, to invest in what he's doing. I can't just jump to the give the money thing, right? Because if that's the thing, it never, it never works. If the heart isn't there first, people aren't going to invest. And so if we're really going to do mission with the Lord, we have to get our hearts right first. I will only give my time, my talent, my treasure, if I'm fully invested and if I'm celebrating God and his mission. Not reluctantly, not I have to because I said yes to Jesus, but like, yes and amen, I am with you, God. All in. Let me say it like this. My investment in multiplication is dependent on my celebration of God's mission. I'll only invest in multiplying disciples as much as I am in love with God and the mission that he's put before me. Investment flows from a celebration of the heart. So, I said at the beginning, to help multiply disciples, I need a heart for God, not just the hand of God. I think a lot of people look at Barnabas and Saul, and they look at everything that they accomplished uh, on the missionary journeys and all, all the churches they planted and all the stuff they did. They're like, well, yeah, of course they did. Look at how talented they were. God, God blessed them with abilities and gifts, and look at everything they did. And, they, and no doubt, they had some abilities. But that's not why they were successful. When you look throughout the Bible, every hero of the faith, it didn't start with an ability. It started with a heart for God. Because there were some guys in the, Old, in the Old Testament, especially and even in the New Testament, that God gave them some abilities, but they didn't have the heart, and it got everything screwed up really royally. Right? The heart is what comes first. The heart is the important piece. And you and I, we can be used by God just as much as anyone else if we will continue to grow our heart for him. So how do you do that? How do I grow my heart more in love with God? Prioritize worship. Encounter God on a regular basis in your life. Open your hands. Say yes when God speaks. Let him do what he wants to do. And celebrate the multiplication of the mission. Worship and exalt and say, yes, I am in, Lord, whatever it is. I am all the way in. I think if you do that, you will be blown away by how much mission you get to be a part of in the kingdom of God.